Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Here we are with episode 68 of the podcast and the second to last for 2017. It is great to have you with us back again this week. First of all, I want to tell you about Mushroom FM's holiday countdown because time is running out for you to vote. And you know what they say? If you don't vote, you don't have the right to complain or something like that. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But our guest today is Emma Benison. I thought that this was a timely topic to raise, given that people will be travelling around the place over the Christmas period via air. And we're going to be talking to Emma Benison, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Blind Citizens Australia, about something that happened to her at the hands of Virgin Australia, with whom she is a frequent flyer. I mean, she's got all the points. She gets to go into the frequent flyer lounge. She is one of their most valued customers. And in the end, none of that mattered when she was subjected to a series of incidents that really no passenger should be subjected to in an airline that understands their need to accommodate disabled passengers. So we'll talk about that. And I would also say that it's a timely reminder that if you are doing any flying this Christmas, it's important not to go into these things looking for a fight. And I do know some people who do that, and that's a bit unfortunate. But there's no harm in being equipped with information. There's no harm at all in being armed with information about what you are legally entitled to, what the airline is legally required to provide to you, and to insist firmly, politely, but nevertheless insist on the accommodations that you are entitled to if you need to use those accommodations. And some blind people don't feel that they need to use those accommodations. And I'll talk about that with Emma during the interview. First of all, though, let me tell you for the final time about Mushroom FM's top 100 Christmas countdown and Christmas party. This is taking place this Sunday, that is the 17th of December, and it starts at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. That's 2 p.m. in the UK. It's bright and early, very bright and early, like 3 a.m. on a Monday morning in New Zealand, and it goes for 10 hours where we play the top 100 Christmas songs or holiday songs as voted for by listeners. And we have a lot of fun along the way. Everybody who votes gets an invitation to the virtual Christmas party. And we hang out on Twitter. Everybody's assigned a seat at a virtual table. It's it's really a lot of fun. It's a great social media and musical event. We'd love for you to be a part of this and also to just tell us what your top 10 Christmas songs are. MushroomFM.com slash Countdown2017 is how you vote for that. MushroomFM.com slash Countdown2017. Now, after we talk to Emma, I am going to play for you a little piece I put together back in 2015, and it's kind of resurfaced over the last few weeks, interestingly enough, that you might want to consider when you vote. You know, I don't want to try and skew the vote, but I just want to say I've done this. I think it's still very timely and topical given the problems we have getting from A to B sometimes. So I will play this in the spirit of the season. And if you want to vote for it in the Mushroom FM Top 100 Countdown, well, you can, because it's actually in the system now, because somebody voted for it we added it to the system. I also will play a little bit later a seasonal favourite. It's something that's become a seasonal favourite in the last uh, three years or so, and I'll talk a bit about how that came to be a little bit later in the podcast as we hear the story once again for many of you of Louis the Blind Christmas Elf. So that's all coming up here on this edition of The Blind Side. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen. 
On the blind side this week, we're going to talk with someone we have spoken to previously a little over a year ago, but in an ever so slightly different capacity. Emma Benison joins us this time, not in the studio, but in Australia. Hi, Emma. Hi, Jonathan. So the last time we talked to you, you were the president of Blind Citizens Australia, and now you're the chief executive. So what went on there? Uh, well, the board decided that uh, it needed to recruit a new chief executive officer after having had a couple of interim staff members in the role. And I gave it quite a lot of thought, in fact, around about this time last year, and decided to step down from the presidency and apply for the role. And fortunately, I was successful. And so I've been in the role since February, and it's been very busy, but very rewarding, almost 12 months. The sentiment that I seem to hear all over the web and people I talk to, you've got the organisation humming. And when I went to the Blind Citizens Australia Convention, I was really impressed by the kind of buzz about the place. And it was the most attended convention, I think. Yes, it was. It was. Um, we had 150 people um, at the convention. We usually get, uh, you know, maybe 90 to 100 people. We also had a really good uh, attendance on the streaming um, audience as well. Um, but it's really good to hear you say that that's what you're hearing and observing because, you know, when you're actually working inside an organisation, it can be difficult to tell what kind of impact the organisation is having um, outside. So it is it is really heartening to hear you say that. One thing that was different, I noticed at the convention was there's not a lot of time there for sort of resolutions and debate, is there? It's it's quite a structured program where there are a lot of presentations and that kind of thing, but but not really too much time for debate. I, that, that was interesting to me. Yeah, it is really interesting, isn't it? Because certainly when I first began attending Blind Citizens Australia conventions, which would have been back in the mid-90s, there were many more sessions um, in relation to resolutions and much more opportunity for debate. In fact, it was probably quite skewed in that direction. And then over the past sort of 10, 15 years or so, we've moved towards this more structured session-based program approach. And in fact, to the point where up until this year, there was really no time for people to make what we're now calling recommendations just to make it a little less formal but there there have been no opportunities for people to do that in a, any formal sense up until this convention for some years we, we've had a few sessions in recent years that have sort of been opportunities for people to share their ideas and suggestions with the board but nothing formalized until this year so I, I think that we're heading towards trying to find a middle ground I agree with you I don't think we're quite there yet um, but we certainly are aware that members need more opportunity, even even within the sessions themselves, to um, to ask more questions and have more discussion. It's always a, a major challenge for us to try and get that balance right, but I think we are heading in that direction. It's great to see things in such a healthy state. It, it really is. And we would have talked to you at some point, but the reason why I asked you to come on the blind side this week is because it doesn't get much more ironic than this. You were doing some traveling on the day that has been designated the International Day of Disabled People and had another of those horrific airline experiences. And since we are coming up to Christmas and a lot of people will be traveling home to see family, I thought it would be good to highlight this. 
and um, find out what happened to you. And this is with Virgin Australia on Sunday, the, what are we at, the uh, 3rd of December? Yes. I should preface this by saying that it was all the more shocking to me that this happened because I am a, a frequent flyer with Virgin Australia and and in the past, in general terms, have had nothing but good service from them. However, on Sunday, I went to the airport um, with a colleague. I went into the, the Virgin Australia lounge. I reminded them of my meet and assist requirements. That was all fine. I said to them, look, you know, if you would like to, if it's easier, if it makes things easier for you, you're welcome to board me last because I had an aisle seat. Um, and that was really the end of the conversation. And then my colleague subsequently left to catch a flight. Um, I stayed behind to wait for my flight. My flight was leaving at 9.20. The boarding call came at about 9 o'clock. I wasn't concerned because I thought, well, I did ask to be boarded last, so that's perfectly reasonable. Um, at about 10 past 9, the staff member who I had spoken to um, when I came into the lounge approached me and said, look, I'm very sorry, but the meet and assist staff have not had sufficient time to come and get you. They've been too busy. And as such, the flight's already closed and you won't be able to board at this time. And I said, you're kidding. I said, that that is absolutely extraordinary to me, quite unacceptable to me. And I said, can you please tell me what flight you intend putting me on or can you please reopen the flight so that I can get onto it because, you know, it won't take long. And I know that they regularly reopen flights for people. So he refused to do that. And then I then said, well, at the very least, I need an upgrade and I need a refund. And at that point, he said, well, I'll get my supervisor to come and talk to you. So um, I, I sort of actually think I went into shock <laughs> at that point. I just kind of sat there and sort of sort of wondered what on earth I was going to do for about five minutes. Then it sort of occurred to me that, in fact, the supervisor didn't seem to be materialising. I continued to sit there for 30 minutes. I think I made a couple of phone calls just to tell people what had happened so they knew I wouldn't be arriving on the scheduled flight. And then eventually I made the decision to to get up and go and find out what was going on because nothing seemed to be happening. I eventually attracted the, the attention of a, of a fellow passenger who assisted me to the desk. Uh, the staff member at the desk didn't have a clue that this was happening, that anything had happened, but she did assist me to find the staff member who I had originally spoken to and she asked him to explain to her exactly what had happened because she was quite flabbergasted about it. He said that something had gone wrong and she said well what what went wrong what was the problem and he just couldn't respond he was incoherent he just kept sort of saying oh oh well um yes the the meat it was the meat and assist stuff and eventually I said to him look it seems really clear to me that you forgot about me and that you are now trying to use the meat and assist staff as as a scapegoat for your human error and I said, it's really disappointing that you won't own your mistake. And he apologised to me at that point and said that, yes, that was exactly what had happened and that he would get his supervisor to come and speak to me. So so the staff member, the other staff member, made me a cup of tea, sat me back down, told me to wait. I waited another 15 minutes. 
and then I thought, well, there's no point in going back to the desk. Nothing good's going to come of it. So I just rang the call centre and told them what had happened and asked them to expedite the process, told them that I had children waiting for me at home, et cetera, et cetera, that this was really getting out of hand. And within minutes, the supervisor materialised. And when I asked him why he didn't bother to prioritise my issue, he said that he'd walked past me a couple of times while I'd been on the phone, didn't want to interrupt me, um, and that he'd been very busy with other matters. So um, that, that was quite disturbing in and of itself. Then he told me that the next direct flight that I could catch was at two o'clock. And I said, well, my plans have been really disrupted. Could you get me on an indirect flight? And his response was, well, I didn't think that you'd be able to cope with an indirect flight because you're blind. He thought he said, I thought you'd have trouble connecting, which I found appalling given he's a supervisor in a, a very large airport. But anyway, he did eventually get me on a flight and I did eventually get home four hours after I'd been scheduled to. So it was fairly it was fairly traumatic by the time I actually got through all that, particularly because of the fact that I felt like I had no recourse. You know, I felt like I, I felt very disempowered by the situation because, you know, nobody was coming to tell me what was going on. I didn't know where the desk was. There were all sorts of complexities that made it really, really difficult. And the and the last straw, I have to say, was that um, when I did finally get meet and assist to go to the to the flight, um, they said, "Oh, here we here we bought you a wheelchair." Oh God! And I said, "Oh, for God's sake!" I said. I said, do none of you actually bother to ask people what they need? You just continually assume. I said, I'm really sorry. I realise it's not your fault, but this is just the last straw. Um, so she took the wheelchair away. But, um, <laughs> but yes, it was was a rather unfortunate end to the whole debacle. It's very disconcerting, isn't it, when you just want to go about your business and get home after uh, being in in another city and get back to to your family and these things happen and it sounds like nobody really cared nobody sort of took ownership of the problem or, or considered it particularly urgent or worthy of attention in a timely manner no, I, I think that was the thing that really distressed me at the time more than anything else I mean people do make mistakes and I'm a really you know fairly easygoing person when it comes to to these sorts of things. I mean, if, if the guy had owned up in the first place and said, look, I made a mistake, I'm really sorry, I would have said, look, you know, we all do that. It's okay. You know, we'll sort it out. But the fact that when I was sitting there waiting, nobody came to see if I was okay. Nobody, you know, when I stood up to go and find um, the desk, there must have been, there are always plenty of staff in those lounges. Not one of them approached me to see if I was okay or what I needed um, it just made me feel invisible. And it's been a long time, I have to say, since I've really felt like that. And since I've really felt, I, I actually texted a friend and I said, well, I'm still waiting for the supervisor. Nobody knows what's, what flight I'm going to be on and nobody seems to much care. And that is, that is really how it felt. Like it was just, they just didn't. They just didn't care. And the supervisor actually said to me, because he came with me to the to the flight, because I think he'd realised at some point, you know, I, I had mentioned what my job was and that I wanted to know, you know, what the, what the changes were going to be to the process after this because, you know, our members would want to know. 
Um, so I think after that, he kind of realised he'd better take a bit more of an interest in me because I might actually rock the boat. So um, he came down to the flight and he said to me, he said, we were just really short-staffed. And I said, well, there's no excuse for that when you know what your passenger load is going to be on a given day. Um, mm. And also, and, and not to have told me, they could have flagged that with me beforehand and I would have been less um, disturbed by it, but they, but they didn't. Yeah, yes, it, it's it's almost as if rather than treating people with a disability as an accommodation that must lawfully be dealt with, it's like you're an encumbrance and an inconvenience, yes. and they wish you yep. weren't there. Yeah, yeah, and and like they they're doing you a favour, and you and you really just should be grateful if you get on a flight at all. <laughs> it's, right, it's rather than being a paying customer who's entitled yeah. to these accommodations by law. Yeah. I understand the the airline staff were pretty attentive though on the aircraft itself once you did actually get on an aircraft. They were. They kept offering me wine and chocolate, and um, and they kept apologising to me for for what had happened. I think the word got around fairly quickly. I mean, I I told one flight attendant, and I think by the time I got onto the second flight, they all they all knew. So you know, they were very very good after that. Um, and when I got back to my destination, my, to my home destination, um, they all know me there and they were absolutely horrified. And consequently, I've since spoken to someone in the um, CEO's office of Virgin Australia and I'm I'm meeting with them next week to discuss the issues. So that's a good outcome, but I, I really, I've, I am genuinely terrified to think of what would have happened if it had happened to someone who wasn't as resourceful or as able to 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 advocate for themselves as what I am um, because I just don't know. I just have a terrible feeling that someone could just be left sitting there for hours. It does go to show, though, how important self-advocacy skills are, doesn't it? And that uh, really I think organisations need to ensure that there are good self-advocacy programs in place because the trick here is also not to lose your rag, right? Because then in a way yeah, you've, you've you've lost the high ground. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And a lot of people have said to me, oh, if I'd been in your position, I would have been so angry. And I said, I actually didn't feel angry. I was just deeply disappointed. And, and I think that's what showed that they knew that I was just really disappointed. But also I think the other important lesson for me and the the lesson that I would would like younger people to particularly to take from this is that this sort of stuff happens to everyone. Like I think there's a sense, I certainly know when I was younger that I sometimes thought, oh, if I was older and wiser, you know, maybe I could have got myself out of this or maybe I would have known some tip or some trick, you know, to make this go away. But the reality is it happens to everyone, no matter what your age, your position, whatever and really all you can do is I guess learn the skills to deal with it as best you can but then also recognize that everybody no matter who you are has an emotional response to that afterwards and it's perfectly legitimate to have that kind of response and I I think a lot of people have been surprised at the fact that I've been really open about talking about that but I think we need to be because I think people just sweep these things under the carpet and say oh well you know the behaviour has been stopped, and so that's enough. But there's a, there's a residue response that you have to deal with as well, and I think we do need to start talking about those things. Now, we have a very diverse audience in terms of geography and perspectives on blindness, 
And so if I don't ask you these questions, people will comment. So let me ask you these questions. There will be some, particularly some of our friends in the United States, who will say this is exactly why using meet and assist is a bad thing, that somebody yes. with your travel yes. skills uh, yes. at your level, with your ability, um, should show <laughs> some leadership and not need the meet and assist, that if there is a boarding call made, why would you not just follow the crowd mm -hmm. to the gate and get on board mm -hmm. the plane and bypass the meet and assist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a valid question. Um, I think there are a couple of things I'd say. Um, one is that I was in a lounge situation, so I was nowhere near the gate and I had no idea where the gate was. So it was a as in a, a club, like a Virgin Australia club lounge situation. So that's the first thing. It wasn't as simple as me just getting up and following a crowd because there wasn't a crowd to follow. The second thing is that because I travel a huge amount, I travel to, you know, various different airports and I don't, I don't have time to have orientation to all of them. I freely admit that my independent travel skills in unfamiliar environments are probably not as good as some people's and I'm perfectly happy to own that. I have good mobility skills. But the other thing I would say is that I find um, independent travel extremely tiring. And so I am not going to prioritise that over, you know, getting my job done um, or managing my staff appropriately or whatever else I have to do or in a day. But I think beyond that, um, it is a service that, that the airline offers and, in my view, absolutely needs to offer. And I think it's an expectation that we should have. I think the expectation that blind people will be able to travel in massively large, unfamiliar airports is is not one that I support or understand, frankly, but I, I totally understand that people have different views on it. Mm. And I think the bottom line, isn't it, is that people should not have to be really competent uh, travelers in unfamiliar environments. You know, people will talk about the discovery method and, and just asking mm. random strangers and things like that. But, but it is a litmus test that doesn't apply to sighted people and that everybody, no. irrespective of their competency or, or degree of comfort with doing that has the right to get on an aircraft that they've paid for. Absolutely. And and I think the other thing I would say is that for many people, myself included, independent travel, I know I know people who who find independent travel extremely exhilarating, fun, exciting, adventurous, whatever. Personally, I find it incredibly anxiety provoking, and I and I do um, openly talk about the fact that I have an anxiety disorder. So for me, it's not just about a choice; it's actually about maintaining my my health. So, you know, I think I think all of those things have to be taken into consideration um, by airlines um, when they're making policy decisions about meet and assist, because it's not just about um, a simple matter of choice. In my in my mind. Has there been much response to your situation? I, I think you posted on Facebook about it and uh, you've been pretty public about what happened to you. What's the reaction been like? Um, yeah, the, I've been quite um, shocked by the reaction. I think it's been shared about 300 times on Facebook now and, um, you know, people have just been gobsmacked by it. And I think what what's really pleasantly surprised me is that People haven't been sort of um, commenting with the, oh, you poor thing, you poor blind person. They're, 
their indignance is purely with the fact that um, I made it clear in my article that I'd been away for, for work and I'd been doing business things over the weekend. I made it very clear that, you know, I have a, uh, a job that's that's um, making a difference in people's lives. And I so I think people are just angry with the company's disregard and, and angry that um, anyone should have to be treated like a second-class citizen in, in 2017 and also angry that I wasn't consulted with by the airline in terms of what flight I wanted to be on or when I wanted to travel or, or any of those things. I wouldn't say I'm glad it's happened, but I think it's, um, it's <laughs> for want of a better pun, opened people's eyes to the um, to some of the attitudinal barriers that we still experience. Did you get any negative reaction, you know, people saying stop complaining? Um, yeah, I've, I had a couple of um, comments, not from people I knew, um, but on Facebook where people said, oh, well, you should, I can't believe you asked for an upgrade. You know, that was a bit much. You know, you shouldn't shouldn't expect that, um, which is fine. They're entitled to their opinion. Um, I just happen to think that when I've been treated effectively like a piece of luggage, um, that the least they can do is actually provide me with a decent level of service to make up for it. But I also think um, that with these, with large companies like this, that unfortunately, though we might wish it were different, um, there has to be some economic impact in order for them to um, recognise what they've actually what they've actually done to people. So I have no qualms about that. Speaking of which, what happened to your luggage? Did that go without you? <laughs> no. no, luckily I... Um, Luckily, I hadn't checked in my any luggage, so I still had all my luggage with me. So that was that was something to be grateful for. Do you expect to receive compensation from Virgin Australia? Um, yes, I do expect to. Um, I expect to have a conversation with them about that, and they have already raised that matter um, with me. I have, I guess, spoken to them both in terms of um, compensation, but also just as importantly about. Um, you know, what we can do in terms of working with them to to improve the systems and processes and what Blind Citizens Australia can can offer them in terms of consultancy and training because um, I certainly think there's a need for that that as well. How common is this sort of thing in Australia? Are, are airlines um, a bit rogue there or is this an exception? <laughs> um, I Look, I think... Per, from what I've from what I've heard from friends and colleagues in the US, um, for example, it's actually a lot better in Australia in general terms. But that having been said, I do hear quite regularly of issues with people not getting the meet and assist service that they've requested, or having to wait for significant periods of time to get meet and assist, or um, experiencing the situation like I did yesterday, where they've where they actually miss flights. The other issue that seems to be a big one um, at the moment is about um, guide dogs and people uh, missing their flights because there's been no one available who who knows how to check a guide dog in and a whole range of other, you know, guide dog-related issues. So, I I mean, I don't think it's terrible by any means. Um, I think by and large most of us travel fairly seamlessly but there are some issues and I I think this um, experience probably presents a good opportunity for us to address hopefully address some of them. 
Yeah, I asked the question because we have Jetstar here, which is is, is an Australian airline, like a subsidiary mm. of Qantas, I think. And there have mm. been a series of pretty unfortunate incidents involving a number of people with different sorts of disabilities. And yes. actually, I was trying to fly back home after my dad died earlier in the year mm. and called Jetstar on the phone and said that we would be traveling with a guide dog. I got two people who did not know what a guide dog was. Oh, God. And yeah. uh, they, they, they seemed very confused by this. And apparently when I, when I complained to Jetstar about this, they mm -hmm. said, oh, you have to use the term service animal. And I said, well, we never refer oh. to the guide what? dog as a service animal. It's your job to understand no. what a guide dog is. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just I just I just wonder whether the you know um, Jetstar's got a bit of a bad rep here in terms of accommodating disabled yeah, people. Yeah, look, it has had here as as well. Um, although I hear that things have improved, it's always hard to know whether it's a systemic improvement though. Um, but I certainly know that I, I've had some issues with them in the past, and I know lots of other people have, and there have been issues with um, wheelchair passengers using wheelchairs and so forth as well. So I think they have had some, some issues for sure. Mm, and I think the other issue here is the, the key point that you made, that you are a frequent flyer. And so mm. you'll have uh, a lot of points with them. Yep. You are yep. contributing quite regularly uh, to, to their revenue base, and yet none mm. of that seemed to matter. And I, I would think that if you didn't have a disability, as a frequent flyer, you would have been treated like royalty. Yes, yes, yes. I, I think that's right. And that was one of the things that I just found quite bizarre is that after they knew they'd made this, what I think is an appalling mistake, to just then dump me on a seat and <laughs> do nothing is just quite quite gobsmacking, really. Um, and as you say, especially being a frequent flyer, I mean, I'm still quite shocked that they didn't just reopen the flight because I know they can do that. And my suspicion is that perhaps the, the staff member just didn't want his mistake to be discovered. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. There's a Christmas party going on, and you are invited. It's the Mushroom FM Holiday Countdown, backed by popular demand. Back because it's Christmas, back because it's a good time. The Mushroom FM Holiday Countdown. During our Christmas party on December 17th, we'll be playing all of the top songs in order, as voted for by listeners. To cast your vote, go to mushroomfm.com slash countdown2017 and pick from our list, or type in songs of your own. And then, you'll get an invitation to a party you don't want to miss, live on Twitter and in your face. The party begins Sunday, December 17th at 9am Eastern. Reserve your place when you vote for your favorite holiday songs at mushroomfm.com slash countdown2017. Mushroom FM's Holiday Countdown. It's back. It's back. Oh, it's back indeed. We're really looking forward to it. Make sure you get that vote in mushroomfm.com slash countdown2017. Well, a couple of things that I produced a while ago have surfaced in the last few weeks because people have asked for them. So I thought I'd play them. We're getting into the festive mode now, I think. And this one, 
takes us back to something I put together in 2015. And I think at the time I put it up on SoundCloud, if I remember correctly, and lots of people retweeted it and it kind of went over the social media for a while. And I think it's still pretty topical, the idea that if we could just have access to a self-driving car, what a difference it would make to the lives of blind people. So now it's in the countdown system. If you want to vote for this one as part of your top 10, scarily enough, you can. It's a parody based on Gayla Peavy's famous Christmas classic. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Here's my take on it. Okay, Google, take me to the pub. The pub is 13 minutes from your location by car and light traffic. I want the Google driving car for Christmas. Only the Google driving car will do. I don't like the bus. I can't stand the train. Cause sometimes public transportation really is a pain. I want the Google driving car for Christmas. My car can take my children to the zoo. I thought I might like to ride a racing bike. But I got too close to a car that snapped my cane in two I can see me now one Christmas morning Checking out the tree And I'd find that Santa's elf Brought a car that drives itself It would drive down to the pub with me I want a Google driving car for Christmas Only a Google driving car will do don't want a droid or geeky Google glasses. I only like Google driving casses and Google driving casses like me too. I drive to the store when I get the urge instead of 3 a.m. so I avoid the Uber surge. watch a drive-in movie and when we arrived I'd make sure that from now on they were audio described I can see me now on Christmas morning checking out the tree and I'd find that Santa's elf brought a car that drives itself it would drive down to the pub with me I want a Google driving car for Christmas Only a Google driving car will do I don't want a droid or geeky Google glasses I only like Google driving casses And Google driving casses like me too Oh boy, I want a Google driving car for Christmas. Just one of the... I think we've got about 350 songs in the Mushroom FM List And you can write your own in as well. So do feel free to get your vote in. And now to close the second to last episode of The Blind Side for 2017. It is really nice. I mean, it's it's lovely that every year since I put this together, I get asked for the story. So now it's got a permanent home on the Mosin Consulting website. You can go to mosin.org slash Louis to find it. Mosin.org slash Louis. And this is Louis the Blind Christmas Elf. And I put this together in 2014 because my kid's mum actually is now a teacher of 
blind kids, which is neat. And she called me and she said, I have got a student who's written to Santa in Braille, and the student is really concerned that Santa won't be able to read the Braille mail. And she said, I remember all the stories that you made up for our kids when they were little. And would you be able to do something, do you think, to reassure this child that actually Santa will be able to read the mail that was sent? And I said, I'd be happy to give it a shot. And I put together the story. And it's also, I think, I was motivated to put this together in a way that told kids who might be struggling, you know, because it can be tough. There are many advantages about being in a mainstream school and uh, being with your peers and more importantly, going home to mum and dad every night and all those good things. But sometimes kids can be cruel. And when you're different in some way, sometimes kids can accentuate that difference and make you feel a little bit out of the ordinary. And so I wanted my way of the story to make a blind child reading it feel extraordinary. So I put together Louis the Blind Christmas Elf. I wrote it down originally, wrote it in Word, and I gave it back to Amanda. And I said, there you go, have this. Hope that does the job. And she called me back and she said, this is really good. But I wonder if you'd consider doing an audio version of it because you've got the studio and you used to do all these silly voices for the kids when you read stories to them or made up stories for them. You'd do a great job of putting an audio version of Louis the Blind Christmas Elf together. So I thought, yeah, why not? So I sat down in the studio with the Word document and my Focus 40 Blue and read it out and thought about what these characters might sound like. And since then, and that was 2014, every Christmas when it rolls around, I get requests for it and I hear about just just lovely stories about um, this story being read to kids or played to kids. Um, sometimes it's been played, I understand it, consumer organization, uh, local meetings and things. It's It's wonderful. It's it's a it's a nice feeling to have made that kind of contribution. So for those who want to hear it again, or if you've not heard it before, here's the story of Louis the Blind Christmas Elf. Louis the Blind Christmas Elf by Jonathan Mosen. A long, long time ago. So long ago that even your teacher hadn't been born yet, so that makes it a really, really long time ago. A stylish, shiny, elf-driving car pulled into the long driveway at Santa's busy workshop. Out of the car stepped Mrs. Scott, a smartly-dressed elf wearing a business suit and black patent-leather high-heeled shoes. They made such a loud clop, clop, clop sound on the cobblestones leading to the gingerbread front door of the workshop that Harold, the chief elf, heard his visitor coming even over the sound of all the toys being made and packed. He met Mrs. Scott at the door of the workshop, greeting her with a wide smile, a firm handshake, and a laugh that was squeaky and high-pitched, yet somehow when you heard it, you could tell it was coming right from his wobbly little tummy. He immediately felt underdressed in the overalls he was wearing while he was helping out on one of the assembly lines. Yet despite Mrs. Scott looking immaculate and Harold looking decidedly shabby, Harold was the boss, and she had something he needed. "'Come in, come in! You must be from the Elf Improvement School!' Harold exclaimed. Harold ushered Mrs. Scott into his office, and one of the kitchen elves was asked to make her a cup of tea. 
Making all those toys and sorting them for Santa made all the elves hungry like a wolf. So Santa's workshop had a big kitchen where all kinds of delicious treats were being made for the elves to eat whenever they got hungry. Mrs. Scott had been the director of the School of Elf Development for five years, but this was the first time she had visited Santa's workshop. If elves were ever lucky enough to get a job with Santa, almost no one left. That meant that even though there were many elves graduating every year from the School of Elf Improvement, not many got the ultimate prize, the job of working for Santa. Mrs. Scott was at Santa's workshop on this day because Harold had called her late one night on her elf phone, saying that with more children than ever in the world, they could use a bit more help. After the tea arrived and Mrs. Scott sampled some of the delectable fairy cakes from the workshop kitchen, she opened her briefcase and they got down to business. As you can appreciate, she said, Every elf would love to work here at Santa's workshop, but I know you can only use the cleverest, most capable elves. You have so much to do. So I've brought you three elf assessments to take a look at. Mrs. Scott took out three beautifully spiral-bound leather folders with the name of an elf etched in gold on the front cover of each one. This is Huey, she said. Huey loves building musical instruments. During one of his exams, he built a piano, a clarinet, a huge noisy drum kit, and a didgeridoo, oh, and a nose flute, and a plinkety-plankety, all in under an hour. I've never seen anything like it. Mrs. Scott beamed. Well, now, said Harold, looking impressed. I've heard of most of those things, of course. We have lots of them being built in the workshop right now, actually. But what's a plinkety-plankety? Oh, said Mrs. Scott, beaming with pride. It's a new instrument Huey invented himself. If he doesn't come to work here, I'm sure he'll be producing it for one of the big toy companies before the year is out. Hmm, said Harold. He sounds wonderful and would make a great addition to the team, I'm sure. But the thing is, we're not really having any trouble keeping up with the musical instruments. Who else do you have? Well said Mrs. Scott, moving the second leather-bound volume to the top of the pile. This is Stewie. Now, Stewie is a genius at making toy kitchens and all the things to go in the toy kitchens. Do you know, she said, getting so excited that she spilled a bit of fairy cake all down her front, so it was just as well that her garment was elf-cleaning. The other day, Stewie made a toy kitchen with a fridge that really gets cold. But that's not the half of it. It only works when you put chocolate in the fridge. Put another kind of food in the fridge and nothing happens. Outstanding piece of work. Very clever, said Harold. Although I'm not convinced the boys and girls will want a fridge that only keeps one thing cool. And we do have some good engineers here. Still is worth considering. And who's the last elf you wanted to show me? Ah, well, said Mrs. Scott, suddenly looking a little fidgety, I really wasn't sure about whether to suggest Louis or not. Louis is special. There was something in the way Mrs. Scott used the word special that immediately piqued Harold's curiosity. What exactly do you mean by special? Well, you see, 
Louis makes excellent use of his hearing. It's not that his hearing is better than any of the other elves in the school. It's just that he tends to take a lot more notice of what he's hearing. Recently, we were manufacturing a load of ride-on tractors for a toy company, and one of the wizardy bobs developed a fault. Oh, no, said Harold, understanding exactly how serious a matter this was. You get a problem with one of your wizardy bobs, it can really set you back. Actually, we had a fault with one of our wizardy bobs here at Santa's workshop last Christmas. It stopped a lot of our production for a week because no one picked up on it, and we nearly had to cancel Santa's delivery altogether. Well, exactly, said Mrs. Scott. If Louis hadn't heard the subtle change in the machine caused by the problem with the wizardy bobs, I think we would have lost the contract. We were so lucky he was around. I'm intrigued, said Harold. We could definitely use someone with those skills. Tell me more about this Louis. He's very thorough, said Mrs. Scott. He inspects things with his hands and often picks up on problems making things that we might miss visually. It's been very useful to us more than once. But why? asked Harold. Why doesn't he just use his eyes like everyone else? Because his eyes don't work, said Mrs. Scott. Louis's totally blind. Blind? Harold scratched his little head in utter amusement. But how does he... how will he... what if he... I just don't think a blind elf would work in our workshop. I thought you might think that, said Mrs. Scott patiently. But hear me out. Remember how you nearly had to cancel Christmas Eve once because it was too foggy for Santa to travel? If it wasn't for Rudolph, kids all around the world would have gone without their presents that year. Oh, I remember it well, sighed Harold. It was the most scary day of my life. I was so stressed I was beside my elf. Then surely, continued Mrs. Scott, you know... People with a range of abilities and gifts make Santa's workshop run more smoothly. Louis can bring skills that many of your other elves don't have. You make a good point, Mrs. Scott, Harold said. Send him to us, we'll take him on. I don't want anyone getting hurt, and there's a lot that goes on in this workshop, but we'll give it a go. Louis arrived at Santa's workshop the next day with his little suitcase and his long white candy cane. He put it out in front of him so he knew when he was getting close to an obstacle. If the cane hit a wall or something left on the ground, he would feel it. And after being shown around the place, he soon started remembering where all the divisions of Santa's great workshop were located. It wasn't that difficult for Louis. He soon noticed how different the sounds of the machinery were depending on which part of the workshop he was in. Sometimes his sense of smell helped too. Just like his hearing, it was no better than anyone else's. But since he didn't have his sight, he took more notice of what his other senses were telling him. Louis was very excited about meeting Santa, but Harold explained that since Christmas was getting close, Santa was very busy preparing, and usually elves just starting out didn't get a chance to meet the big guy. Louis settled down to work as quickly as he could, but he wasn't happy. He felt that he wasn't being given as much responsibility as he was capable of. Everyone was very nice to him, but they just couldn't imagine how he could do the things that needed to get done if he wasn't able to see. Louis tried to be patient and explain. 
Since you've been able to see all your life, he said, you use your sight. You depend on it for lots of things, and that makes sense. But I've never been able to see, so I don't know any different. I get by just fine without any sight. I might do things in a different way sometimes, but I still get the job done in the end. Still, the elves found it hard to give Louis a fair chance. It's not that they meant any harm. They were just scared about him being hurt. Then, one day, a mad panic developed in the mailroom at Santa's workshop. Every day at precisely twenty-nine o'clock, a small earthquake could be felt as the mail from all the children who had recently written to Santa got delivered to the workshop. The mail elves had an efficient system of sorting through the mail and making sure that all the requests from the girls and boys got put on Santa's list. At the end of every day, Santa would always check the list twice to be sure all the good children had their requests noted. But today the male elves had a problem they didn't know how to solve. They had received a group of letters that were nothing like they had ever received before. The male elves prided themselves on being able to read every single language in the world. But these letters had them stumped. Rather than being written with squiggly characters on the page, these letters felt all bumpy. Hannah, one of the male elves, said the pages reminded her of her teenage brother Brad, who was having a major problem with pimples. The page, she said, looked and felt a bit like Brad's face. Do you mean kids are now writing to us in pimple? said Harold, who had been put in charge of solving the issue because of how urgent it was. I don't really think any child would be quite that daddy, Hannah replied. But I think we need to call an elf development meeting to see if anyone can solve this problem. Because Santa has made it clear, we need to do whatever it takes to make sure all girls and boys who write to us have their requests read, even if we can't always grant them all. Elf development meetings didn't happen very often so close to Christmas, but this was an emergency. All the elves from around Santa's workshop stopped what they were doing and gathered together at exactly elf o'clock for the big meeting. For the first time in our history, Harold announced, we've received a group of letters from girls and boys that none of our team can read. Here's a sample. Harold held up a page of the dot-filled writing. Everyone stared, first at the dotty page, then blankly back at Harold. No one had any idea what the writing was or how to read it. The interesting thing about this writing is, Harold said, if you touch it, it feels very easy to distinguish by touch, almost as if it's supposed to be read with your hands. Louis's little ears pricked up. He couldn't see the sample, but based on the description, he was pretty sure he knew what it was. May I please feel a page of writing? Louis asked. Harold handed Louis a page filled with the dots. Louis took the fingertips of both index fingers and started gently running his fingers across the page. He began to speak. Dear Santa, my name is Sam. I am nine, and I can't wait until your visit. For Christmas, I would please like a cool train set, one with plenty of awesome sounds and loud whistles if you can. My sister Amy is seven. She is a pest, so I think you should give her a frog. Love, Sam. 
How did you do that? And more to the point, what is that dotty stuff? Harold asked. It's Braille, said Louis. It's the new way for blind people to read and write. These letters are from blind boys and girls. They're writing to you themselves. You see, Braille lets blind children write to us here at Santa's workshop just like sighted children can. Suddenly all the elves started jumping up and down and clapping. Hooray for Louie! Hooray for Louie! The elves were happy because, thanks to Louie, they could make sure that all girls and boys, including those who read Braille, could get their presence on Santa's list. Louis spent a lot of time in the mailroom after that, but that wasn't all he did. The elves realised that just because you're blind, it doesn't mean you don't have valuable skills that others may not have. They realised that Louis just did things differently. Not better, just differently. Soon, Louis was also put in charge of Wizzamibob inspection. The elves used to be worried that Louis would hurt himself because Wizzamibobs have so many moving parts. But they knew that Louis was careful and capable, more capable at that particular job than anyone else. One day, Harold came into the mailroom to find Louis. The big guy wants to see you, Louis, Harold said. Santa, see me? Have I done something wrong? No idea, Harold said. I was just asked to bring you to see him. Louis timidly knocked on Santa's office door. Ho, 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 came the reply. Louis opened the door and walked into the office which seemed to be shaking. It turns out Santa was happy to see Louis, and Santa's enormous belly laughter was making the whole office bounce up and down like a carnival ride. I wanted to see you in person, Louis, Santa said, to thank you so much for your gift. Gift? said a puzzled Louis. Oh, yes, said Santa. You know, every year I give lots and lots of toys to girls and boys all over the world, and that's wonderful. But your gifts are also precious. You see, you showed us all here at the workshop that no matter who we are, we're all special. We're all unique. We can all do something no one else can do. Some of us are good at some things. Some of us are good at others. Some of the elves here thought that just because you couldn't see, you couldn't contribute as much. But they just didn't know better. Now everyone knows you're an important member of our team. We'd be lost without you. You showed all of us that the best gift we can give each other at Christmas is to love and appreciate everyone around us for who they are. And all these years later, every year, when he's not looking after those pesky wismibobs, you'll find Louis in the mailroom making sure that all the braille letters from blind children all over the world are making it onto Santa's list and being checked twice. Which just goes to show there's nothing you can't do as long as you believe in your elf. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.